This is Hawks Heroes with Drew Knoll, where we give a voice to the heroes and meaning to the pain of everyday life with chronic illness. Our hope is that we shed light on the reality of what living with chronic conditions is and give hope to those that feel like they're going about their journeys alone. Every story is a voice, and every voice is a belief that there is someone that shares in your unique experience. Hawks Heroes, a Hawk 5 Studios resource. What's up, guys? Drew here. Thanks so much for stopping by and checking out this episode of Hawks Heroes. In today's episode, I sit down and chat with Emily Burtwistle, a friend and neighbor of ours. Uh, we actually met the Burtwistles through a connection that our sons share, and we may get into that in a future podcast. Um, but we've known them for about a year and a half, and uh, Emily was kind enough to sit down and chat with me about some of uh, her chronic conditions that she's dealt with most of her life. Um, and so, really interesting episode. Episode. Really grateful for her uh, just opening up and being very authentic and transparent about her struggles. And I think that you all are going to really enjoy this conversation. So let's jump into it and we'll catch you on the flip side. Cool. So Emily, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate you jumping on and, uh, you know, kind of telling everybody about your, your story. Um, it, if you would just kind of give us a brief overview of, um, you know, I know today we were going to kind of talk about ASD and some sensory stuff. Um, can can you just kind of give us a brief overview of of kind of what that you know for those that may not know what that is and 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 how that's impacted you? Um, so ASD is autism spectrum disorder. So back in the day, we used to think of, and by back in the day, I mean like, God, I don't know, ten years ago, right. <laughs> autism as just that super low functioning um, kids that would flap their hands, kids that couldn't speak kids and by kids, I mean, obviously adults as well, but we would diagnose them as children. Um, you know, just that super rain man esque, um, symptoms minus the savant of the rain man. Um, just that super low functioning thing. And now we've really finally opened up this dialogue in the DSM and in the psychiatric community of seeing that autism spectrum is a true spectrum. Um, And there are people who are low functioning and there are people who are high functioning and high functioning called Asperger. Um, And even when I was first diagnosed as, I think I was 13, I was diagnosed as high functioning Asperger's. Um, I wasn't even really classified as Asperger's syndrome. I had to be classified as like high functioning Asperger's. Um, So we finally opened into this realm and this DSM diagnosis um, and this coding of ASD, which is this autism spectrum diagnosis disorder. Um, And it's finally allowed us to see that there is this just giant umbrella of symptoms that those on this high functioning spectrum can relate to the low functioning spectrum people with autism as well, where we see those same symptoms, we feel those same compulsions or, um, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but, um, feelings but just on a different, we have a different ability to cope 
because right. of just our genetics or what we've been introduced to of nature versus nurture. Um, and we are able to vocalize on a different way or communicate in a different way to the people around us of what we need. And we've been gifted that. And that's just something that we are thankful for and grateful for. I hope for all of us on that high functioning side of the spectrum that we just get to say, and I hope advocate for those on the low functioning side of the spectrum that like, Hey, here's what they're going through and here's what we're going through. But I right. can vocalize this part of the struggle that I'm in. Um, and this might be something that someone on the low side of the spectrum is going through too. Um, so I think having a spectrum diagnosis is finally such a relief because it gives us those on the spectrum finally this like. I don't know, weight off our shoulders of saying like, sure. yeah, I'm not that kid in the movies who flaps my hands in front of my face all day, but I still have autism. Right, right. Yeah, it, it almost gives, uh, there's freedom in that space, right? Because, yeah. you know, and, you know, it's been it's been a while since I've cracked a DSM, but, um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, in my, in my past career, you know, depending on where you're at, you have to, as much as you may hate it, you have to give a label to something, right? For whatever reason. Yeah. And, you know, for me, that was always the hardest part, you know, whether I was, you know, seeing a kiddo or an adult or, or whatever the case may be, um, you know, and, and for insurance purposes, billing purposes or whatever, right? Uh, or, or even to, for, you know, to, to do the right thing ethically in terms of giving treatment, you know, you have to categorize to some degree Um, and then, you know, the more bureaucracy that's involved, the more you have to categorize. Right. Uh, and it was always really hard for me. That was my, you know, I, you know, I had some colleagues that were, you know, like, yeah, here's what it is. It's a, you know, it's a 304.1. And I'm like, Oh God, how do you know? Like they just throw it out. Like it's nothing, you know? And for me, I really struggled with that because it's like, well, one, I just, I don't, me personally, I don't like labels. Um, you know, I don't like people labeling me because I'm, I'm me, I'm unique. I, you know, there's a lot of things that probably fit some labels. And then there's obviously things about me that don't fit labels. Um, yeah. And I, I, for me, like, and, and especially like autism, Asperger's, those were always really hard diagnoses for me to give somebody. Uh, because to your point, like there are, you know, before we had this spectrum, right? Yeah. It was just an umbrella. Right. And it was like, okay, well, if you're under this at any point, you, you get this label, um, you know, and, and that's really, you know, I, I only know it from my side, but I can, I can only imagine on the other side of it, having to receive that label or at least hear it, whether or not, you know, however much you choose to receive it or not. Um, but at least with a spectrum now you, you have the ability to, or, or at least there's a better understanding of there's a really, really wide range of people that have similar struggles, right. But yeah. that, that, that there are also vast differences. Um, yeah. so I, you know, there's a, I can imagine there's a, there's a freedom there to be able to, okay, yes, I, I do struggle yeah. with some of these things, but to your point, you know, um, y- depending on where you're at. And obviously if you're on, on that higher end, higher functioning into the spectrum, you've got, you've got additional coping mechanisms or, or, or ways that you've learned to deal with life and, and those impulses and urges and things of that nature mm-hmm. that obviously somebody on that lower end 
um, do, doesn't have, and they have to find their own way through, through life as well. So, um, yeah. And actually it's funny that you say that, like that was one of the things my mom and I, as I became an older teenager and even as an adult, but I think we talked about it a lot as I was an older teenager, um, that to her, and she implied it a lot on me. I don't know if that implied the right word, but she imparted a lot of that feeling on me that when I was younger, I had been in child psychiatry since I was, I think the first child psychologist I saw, I was two. Um, but I had been on medication since I was eight. Um, but I had been under child psychiatry care since I was two. Um, and for me, and for her, I remember her even telling me this when I was eight and on my first medication that she never felt like my diagnosis was right and my DSM codes were right. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, she didn't use those words. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but that for her, it was always just more about those words didn't mean as much as mm-hmm. it got me the medication I needed. It got me the help that I needed. And that was what mattered more than the label. And I always understood that. And that made a big difference to me that like that label didn't mean that much. It was just always like for insurance purposes, it got me the medication I needed and it got me the help that I needed. And like that label just was pretty insignificant. And so that never defined me. And I also think because of my mom making that really clear to me, it made a huge difference in what coping skills I gained. Um, because I didn't ever let that label define me. And I think that's a really important piece of parenting a child with special needs um, that sort of gets lost sometimes, especially now that we're so big on like even something as simple as hashtags and, you know, just little things like that, that like kids feel the need to conform, not conform, live up to a label sort of in a sense, like be representative of that diagnosis, X, Y, Z. So I just thought that was a really cool thing. The more I reflect on it now as an adult that my mom did for me without even knowing that she did that for me, um, that helped me a lot. Yeah. I, yeah, it's really cool that your mom, you know, whether it was intentional or not, you know, uh, that, that she did that. Cause I think you're right. And you know, labels are, they're such a weird thing. You know, they can be pejorative or they can be helpful or, uh, you know, or both, right? Like, because, you know, like if you give a kid a good, you know, like, Hey, you're a really smart kid. Right. Well, like, well, what does that mean? You know, like smart compared to who? And when I found ASD, I felt like, Oh my God, that explains so much of who I am. Sure. So like at the same time, like, I was so glad to find that, but I was also so happy that at my core, I knew that that label wasn't everything I was. Right. But I was also so happy that like I could say that to someone that 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 meant something of my medical history. Yeah. So it was like, yeah. I don't know. It's labels are weird. They're really confusing. They are. Well, and too, I mean, you make a good point there too, right? It, it, a label is a if used correctly, right. It's a, it's a, it's a communication function, right? Like if, if yeah. for you, like if you say, Hey, I, I, you know, and then it's even the wording, like, do you, do you have a diagnosis? Yeah. Do you suffer from a diagnosis? Do you yeah. struggle with it? You know, like, you know, yeah. and, and you, so there's Are even you a person that piece with 
or right, a right. Yeah. You know, like in our ethics courses in grad school, it was like, it's not the schizophrenic, it's somebody with schizophrenia. Right. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so, but yeah. at any rate, like to communicate, like, Hey, I have ASD, right. Like that yeah. tells something to somebody and it communicates something to them about, about who you are, not the entirety of who you are. Right. Yes. So it, there's yeah. that positive function of it. But then like even kind of going back to the parenting thing, like, you know, having, having a kiddo with a chronic, uh, you know, with, with hydrocephalus, like we even struggle with like how much, you know, like I can remember back, you know, like when Hawk was a little dude and like we took him to, to, to uh, Sunday school. Right. And it's like, well, do we tell him that he has hydrocephalus? Yeah. Cause we kind of want to, so they look out for these things, but we also don't want to like label him as like this kid that has hydrocephalus so that everybody's so that seeing him through that lens, him. right? Yeah. Like we just, we just want people to see Hawk for Hawk, not Hawk the kid with hydrocephalus, you know? So like, I'm curious for you, your experience. So you said, you know, you were kind of, you were diagnosed with a, with ASD at 13. Is that, did I hear that right? Yes. Yeah. So for, for you, do you feel like, how did that label play a part in the way that you felt people perceived you? Um, You know, I don't think it changed how people perceived me because it wasn't really part of any open conversation with friends or with doctors or anything like that because it didn't change um, anything I did, like physically. I was always with all of my friends. I was a competitive cheerleader. I practiced. 30 something hours a week, most of, um, middle and high school. Um, so we didn't have time to like hang out with high school friends. It was competition cheerleading. So we, um, all the girls on our team were mostly from different high schools. So if we wanted to like hang out on a Friday night, you had to sleep at one of the girls house that you cheered with because you had practice on Saturday from nine to 6 PM. Um, so you didn't have the luxury of like doing anything else. (laughs) So all of those girls were like, you know, my sisters and I had sucked my thumb at their house, watching TV and going to bed all the whole time I knew them. So like Mm -hmm. for me, getting that diagnosis made no difference in the fact that like I, you know, rummaged their pantries when I got to their house, I always checked you know, their bathrooms. And I always sucked my thumb when I wanted to. And I was allowed to roll on the floor when I wanted to. And I could go out back on the trampoline, whether anyone else was there with me or not. And I could lay upside down on the couch when we wanted to watch TV. Like having that diagnosis didn't change any part of how anyone accepted me because Mm -hmm. you were either already knew everything about me or you didn't because I already showed you and you were like, nah. And I was like, okay, then not. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, honestly, it just made me feel seen in a way that helped me understand me, but it didn't change any part of the people around me. Because I had already completely opened up myself to everyone who was in my life. And I had always been that kid. Um, I think as an adult, the first time my mom really said this to me, like, impacted me in a huge way. My mom's not like a very self-confident person. She's a 
she was the oldest of four siblings and she was just one of those kids who was very like just taught to be not needing much and um I don't know being helpful xyz she didn't have a lot of like her own things Mm -hmm. um she was just taught to be a caretaker and she said the first time she quote unquote met me as a toddler she was like I learned what self-confidence meant she was like I was either on board with getting to know who you were by you teaching me who you were Mm -hmm. or you were completely fine with having a civil relationship with me till you were 18 but it wasn't going to be genuine and it wasn't going to last. And she was like, that was when I knew that like you were you and that was like steadfast and and you were okay with showing all of that from the beginning. And you would rather like, you know, and I was, I mean, I remember, I remember saying in elementary school as a young elementary school student, like my mom would come, pick me up and be like oh were your friends not playing with you at recess today and I was like well no they were annoying I told them to go away (laughs) (laughs) like it was people didn't dislike me I disliked people (laughs) like I was I was fine with rejecting people yeah so I was always just very I I don't know I was always me yeah so it's very independent self-sustained yeah yeah and just self confident in a weird way that was sort of completely unjustified (laughs) (laughs) I was weird (laughs) but I loved it I mean I was me well that's an interesting character set to have as you know because like kids you know the a lot of kids in that age range right like middle school high school like those are some of the most uncomfortable um you know like you're you know most that like that middle school you know like when you're especially you know, like going through puberty and things like yeah. that, like everybody's really awkward and they hate each other and they hate themselves and they don't have any self-confidence or you have the people that are like all the way on the other side of it that like they're so full of themselves that everybody yeah. hates them for being so full. Of yeah. themselves, right. So it sounds like, you know, for, for you and those, you know, what would, you know, I don't even like to use the word typical, but for a lot would have been really awkward and uncomfortable years for you. You, you, because of the the coping skills and and the personality yeah. that you had developed, you you kind of just made your own way through I that. Skated, yeah. yeah, yeah. There was just this weird little tunnel that I had that I just I just lived in. That I was like, I'm gonna be mean if you don't like it, then that's fine. Like I have no problem with people not liking me. That's mm-hmm. fine. But I am never going to conform to your idea of what I should be because that's just not who I am. And I'm so okay with who I am. I think I'm awesome and I'm not perfect, but I think I'm awesome for not being perfect. Right. Right. That's just my, that's my view of myself. Yeah. No, that's like came from the way I grew up and the, it all came from the way I was parented. And I think I got really lucky with that, that my mom was just completely unintentional and unaware of the way she did that. But it was amazing. And then it, it turned into the person I am today and the high functioning person I am today. I always say without her, I really could have ended up in a different part of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, well, and I think too, just that, that, you know, I think a lot of people strive to have that level of like self-actualization and self-acceptance, you know, for, for, I don't think a lot of people 
have the, you know, now some people may say it because they, you know, it's the whole, I want to put it out. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. going to say what I want to believe kind of thing. Vision like, board. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm fine with me. I don't care if people like me, but like deep down, like I, I don't, me personally, like, and I feel like I'm a fairly confident, like, whatever kind of person, but like, there's still a part deep down in me that I'm like, do they like me? Do they really care about me? I want them to like, yeah. me. can I, can I change a little bit and not feel yeah. like I changed a lot to make more people like, you know, like having those yeah. internal conflicts. And so like, there's an envious or there's an envy or an enviable part about just being able to go, dude, this is who I am. It's what I am. If you like it, awesome. If not, there's, you know, 329 million other people in this country, you can go have a relationship with, you know, yeah. um, that's, you know, I, that's a cool thing, I think. Um, it was part of, too, why I think there, and I found out much later as an adult, there were a lot of, quote unquote, the popular kids in high school who were not friends with me because I was too self-confident and mm -hmm. I did not worry enough about my image. And so if I was to be popular, I would have not been conscious enough about what I was doing to mm. keep the image of the popular group like as it should be sure if that makes sense yeah so yeah there well, was a there's lot a, of like yeah there's a label there with that group right yeah. like and they all conform to the same label right yes. and that, and that kind of yeah. goes against your your personality the way you're wired yeah yeah there you was care about your own label like, yeah they were intimidated by my ability to not care about the image that people saw me in. Right, um, right. So that was an interesting part of, I even think that that's a huge part of my autism spectrum was just my, and that really is, there really is a symptom, not symptom, I don't know the right word. Never really figured out the right word for that. Um, and that's an interesting thing. I've actually debated on that quite a lot. I hate the word symptom. Um, yeah trait isn't really right either. I don't know Artifact. what it is. Yeah. I really don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, but we'll say a thing or characteristic <laughs> is probably better. Yeah. Um, of being on the spectrum is that you just, you're you, you're, you're genuine in a way that is so different than, I don't know, most other people. And you see it in shows like atypical on Netflix, which I love that show. It's so awesome. I've not um, seen that. I'll have to check it out. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. You should watch it. Okay, um, cool. But you see it in shows like that where he's he's definitely high-functioning, um, the main character who has autism spectrum. Um, but he's genuine to a sense where you're like, it's shocking. It's, mm. it's some of those statements he makes that are like, oh, okay, hold on. You're not supposed to say that out loud. Right, and I right. don't have, you know, I have that more high functioning capability where I do have a little tact. Right. Um, or and a I filter, have that, as it were. Yeah, I have that yeah. conscious ability to see like when things should and shouldn't be said. But at the same time, I have that sense of like, yeah, but why do I care? Right, <laughs> like, right. You know, so I have that internal function of saying, you know what? I really don't care what you think about this or that. Like I'm going to be genuine me and your opinion on that doesn't change my view on myself. So why am I going to change me for you to be happy? Like yeah. I would just rather be genuine and honest and right. 
I don't need to, I don't know, it's not conform, but it's just, I don't need to um, be anyone else. I don't need to, I don't need to make you comfortable because I'm barely comfortable. Right. (laughs) I'm barely comfortable functioning in the real world. So me taking the time to adjust myself to make you comfortable is not in my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. So... Well, I would argue that none of us do, right? Like, it, yeah. It, but we all try to, or or a lot yeah. of people try to, right? Like, it's that yeah. you know, and that, and I guess that's what I was saying earlier. Like, there's a there's a freedom in not not having to worry about that because I I think yeah. you know, like I think about my own self, and you know, there's a constant concern, like, okay, I just you know, and, and especially now, right now, with this whole COVID thing, where we're all doing a lot of like web conferencing and phone calls instead of in-person where you can't judge interpersonal, you know, button, you know, nonverbal body language and stuff like that. Like there's this constant narrative in the back of my head going, okay, I said that, did I say it with the right tone? Did I say it with the right inflection? Did they interpret it the right way? Like all of that stuff, you know, and and I spend a ton of energy doing that, right? Like if I could. But think how happy I am. Like when I thought we were doing this over the phone and then I realized we were doing this over Zoom and we would see each other. I was like, oh no. I have to like think about how my body's going to look and I have to like interpret through facial expressions. And that right. means I have to have facial expressions. Like <laughs> think as a, a person with autism That's spectrum, true. like it makes a big difference. And like yeah. for me, I was even on a walk with my friend earlier and I was telling her like, oh, I'm so nervous about doing this on video, even though I know he's only taking the audio. Yeah. But like, I'm so much better at words mm-hmm. than I am talking. Because there's just, I don't know, there's a filter that comes from taking it from my brain through my mouth through my hands. Sure. Rather than my brain through my mouth. It's an extra layer, that's right? Just, yeah, that's just really different. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And it's just, I, I'm so much more poised when I'm able to write yeah. um, than talk. And sure. so there's like, you know, there is the whole concept of like emails for me mm-hmm. are a thousand times easier than doing anything in person. Gotcha. Um, and phone calls, like I never take phone calls. Mm-hmm. I will, I will like call someone else, but I don't take phone calls because the idea of taking a phone call and being caught off guard is like, I don't know, very not scary, but uncomfortable, anxiety inducing, uncomfortable. Yeah. Just better the other way. Sure. Um, so it is interesting. Like, I'm glad I don't have a job right now where this would be a concern. But mm. if you think about it in the autism spectrum lens, like. Yeah. I had never thought about it that sort way. sort of actually way more. This is more of our, <laughs> our realm. Sure. And 2D, I always say too, this is sort of a weird theory. And I would actually be really interested if we have any listeners who are also on the spectrum um, who have this same sort of characteristic that I have that 2d is much more comfortable for me than 3d. Like for me, there's something I really enjoy about a mirror. Like if I'm at a hibachi restaurant and they have, you know, they tend to have mirrors like behind the chefs. Right. I'm always one of those people who like just watches the mirror and people like you're so vain. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not looking at myself, but there's something about spatial awareness that's really hard. And that's actually really common with ASD 
Okay. Um, but it's like you can see the world in 2D in the mirror and you can like know where people are around you mm-hmm. without having to look. You can see other people's facial expressions. You can, it's like watching a TV rather than seeing in real life. So there's just something about like the 2D perception of like a computer screen or a mirror, whatever it is, that's much more comfortable to me as a person with autism than being in person. Um, So this would be a whole lot more uncomfortable if we were sitting in the same room having this conversation. Yes. Yeah. Very much. Got you. Yeah. Okay. When I talk to like therapists and stuff, I tend to like, I'm always like, I'm just going to turn around now. <laughs> like, okay. There's something about being face to face that's sure. just very different. Facial features look different in person. And I feel like I have to look different. And mm-hmm. I don't know, being 2D is just a much more comfortable. I don't know. It's just, it's just more comfortable. Yeah. It's well, easier to understand. Yeah. I wonder if it's, uh, it's, I think 2d is a, it, it's a less direct form, right? Like, yeah. you know, to your point and, and I don't, and I don't mean this in a derogative way, but like, it's not as uh, personal, you know, in a sense. It's not as abrasive. Abrasive. That's a good word. That's what I was yeah. looking for. Yeah. 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 It's not, or intrusive. Um, yes. you yeah. know, th- yeah. there's a That's distance, a uh, you know, there's a distance there that, that maybe creates yeah. some security. Um, yes. Yeah. 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 That makes makes sense. Um, so I'm curious about how, so you were diagnosed at 13. You said you've, you've been seeing psychotherapists since, since two. Um, and then you've been on, you started medication when you were eight. What, what, if you don't mind sharing prior to 13, were you, were you being treated for autism spectrum disorder symptoms and it it just took them that long to, to kind of, to find that, that right diagnosis or. Yeah. So I had been diagnosed with OCD, bipolar two. These are just the ones off the top of my head that I'm thinking of right now. Mm -hmm. Um, manic depressive disorder, um, ADHD, uh, sensory processing disorder once that finally came into the DSM, which I think was the DSM. That was four. I'm probably not going to say, I was going to say five, but yeah, something like that. Um, And then, okay. Oh, and then sleep disorder. I almost came in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Fine to me. Um, Sleep disorders, multiple of those. I had restless limb for a while. Okay. Um, yeah, so various, various psychiatric disorders. And then just anxiety, depression, um, okay. panic disorder, lots of various. Gotcha. Various codes we went through. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Multiples um, at some time, sometimes on their own. Right. Yeah. Um, so how, so how have you, you know, starting at 13, what were some of the ways or some of the coping skills that you developed or, or things that were helpful for you? Um, I I would imagine that prior to 13, prior to, you know, getting the diagnosis and I, I hate the way that term even sounds, but, um, were there things that you were doing to cope with, with that prior to, or then, you know, 
between now and, and then like what's been helpful for you in just managing that on a day-to-day basis? Um, yeah. So, I mean, getting the, getting a diagnosis on paper and starting medication. I mean, I had a diagnosis before we started Ben. So, right. you know, starting meds at eight and getting a diagnosis of ASD finally at 13 really made no, there was no real change in that. Sure. Um, and even getting my ASD diagnosis at 13, I still have uh, insomnia diagnosis. I still have ADHD. Um, so it's not just ASD even still. Sure. Okay. Um, and then obviously sensory processing is still its own diagnosis, but it's obviously attached with ASD. So I don't have that as a separate diagnosis anymore, but I do still have sensory processing disorder. Um, but for me, I mean, I remember going into kindergarten and telling my teacher like, Hey, I'm bored. I need to do something or I'm going to like not be okay and need to stand up and feel uncomfortable. So she would give me extra work. Um, I remember in third grade, I asked to sit on an exercise ball. Um, I was just always very, very vocal. But at the same time, I remember in daycare as a two or three year old, I remember my mom taking different ways home from daycare. Like if we had to stop at the grocery and I remember losing it, like absolutely losing it because I could see out the window and we were not taking the same way home. And that made me so anxious and I couldn't describe that feeling, but you, you weren't going the same way home. Like that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I manipulatively vomited as a toddler and as an early infant as a way to say like, I'm not okay. okay. Um, and it was a way of saying like, I don't want my shoes on. I don't want to be in my car seat. I'm uncomfortable. I'm mm. anxious. I'm angry, whatever it was. Right. Um, and so I would do things like that or, and then eventually on my way home from pre-K, my mom would learn to do things like say, what do you need off today? What do you need to make at home? And I would either say, I need my shoes off. I need everything off. I just need my shirt off. I just need my socks and shoes off, you know? And so Mm -hmm. she did a really good job of teaching me how to advocate for myself by saying like, you have to tell me how to be able to help you. And if you can tell me that, then I learned, well, if I can tell her that, then I can tell other people that. Mm-hmm. And that was really the starting point of any sort of coping skill was that if I had to tell her that, hey, you know what? I need my Cheerios on the side of the table, not in the middle of the table. Or, hey, you cannot give me colored cereal altogether because if it's not organized, I'm not going to eat it. And if you don't let me organize it, then I'm definitely not going to eat it. Like then no one else can help me. Right. Um, you know, if, if I can't start with the person I'm most comfortable with, then it's not going to go anywhere else. Sure. 
you know, and so that was really where it all began was just at home and with my mom. And I just got really lucky with a mom who was so okay with the fact that it might've seemed like I was manipulating, like to most parents, it would have seemed like, oh my God, she's just manipulating you. She's, you know, saying and doing whatever she wants so that she gets what she wants. And my mom's like, she's a hundred percent doing that. (laughs) I'm aware. Like she is definitely doing what she wants to get what she wants. But I also think what she wants is what she needs for some reason. Right. And at that point, child psychology had no clue about sensory processing or about autism spectrum. And I wasn't the low functioning kid that they knew of that had autism. Right. And my mom was just insistent on the fact that there was something different about me. There was something unique that they just didn't know. And so she was okay with, as long as we worked as a team, she was okay with letting me help teach her who I was. Um, And that just really blossomed into us being like this team that just figured stuff out together about me. And it just turned into like us treating each other as, you know, she would be a teacher or she would be a guidance counselor or whatever it was. And I would just interpret that same conversation into a different adult scenario. Um, and it allowed me to just be functioning in these normal ed classrooms that I truly think without my mom, I probably really would have been seen as a kid who just needed too much attention or needed too many special circumstances or needed all of this or that and would have been a gifted kid put in a special ed classroom. Gotcha. Yeah. So it sounds like your mom was really a, a a huge piece of, of your, your, not maybe not the coping skill, but it helped you to develop them. And and it sounds like the biggest coping skill that you've developed or that you have is that ability to self-advocate. Um, yeah. on a constant basis. Self-realize and then like vocalize and communicate. Yeah. Yeah. Because and I, I think, think that self-realization was sort of the, almost the biggest thing. It was that, and I think that's where I gained that like odd confidence from was that ability to just sort of like, my mom never ever treated what I had to think I needed to do as odd or different it was just like well what do you need to do like this is fine you just need to tell me and so it was like that that was really what initiated that like self-confidence sort of thing in me was like well it's not weird it's just what I need yeah Um, right you know and it was like I had to but I had to know it I had to be able to like find that in me to be able to tell someone or it was never going to happen. Um, and so it pushed that part, but yeah, I mean, it was huge. That was, it it was definitely the main thing, but also like, you know, she spun me around as a kid. She saw that I loved to be upside down Mm -hmm. and that was all that sensory processing stuff that like, she was just like, okay, we're going to do it. Like you love it. You, you are the happiest baby when you're upside down. And as a four month old, like (laughs) she was like, all right, we'll hang you upside down. Like, I don't know. 
Right, right. But, you know, I mean, she just did stuff that was sort of innate nature to her that didn't make sense. And I don't know. I, we always just say, like, in some past life, whether this is true or not, and she's she's a, you know, devout Christian. and But we just always say, like, we were somehow meant to be together. We just yeah. have this... Um, bond that is so unbreakable and so we just knew each other mm-hmm. in a weird way we just knew that like we were gonna be okay as long as we listened to each other as sure. long as we like just really listened and just like I don't know makes me sort of want to cry but yeah well yeah. I think it's very I think you know you were very fortunate to have that, you know, because I think, um, you know, I, I I think that the ability for a parent to intuit that in their own kid, uh, is a, as a really unique gift. Um, you know, because I think parents uh, being one, I think, (laughs) I think there's this, I, I struggle on a daily basis. Like, am I doing right by, you know, by my kids, am I giving them what they need, you know, and, and it's that balance between giving them the freedom to be who they are and, and express themselves, but also like, okay, there are some guardrails in the house and you kind of got to stay in here, you know? Um, and there's a fear, speak for myself and, and like, well, I can't let them go too far out there. You know, it's like, you know, and even, you know, for, for us, for me, even with stupid stuff, like, okay, I want to let him express himself. So I kind of want to let him be able to pick out his clothes, but I also don't want to let him pick out his clothes because then all the kids at school are going to make fun of him. And like, yeah, you know, and, and, and he probably doesn't care. He's like, Hey, I want to wear this shirt and these shorts and these shoes. And I don't give a crap what people think about me, but like, I'm projecting my own like yeah. stuff on him going, well, and really, like, if we're just going to be real honest and open, I'm what, what's going on in my head is if, well, if I was a kid in your school or when I was a kid your age and I saw a kid dressed like that, I'm sure I as heck have. making fun of you because you look yeah. like a dork. Um, yeah. You know, like, yeah. so my own projection, my stuff on him. Um, and so it's pretty remarkable for, uh, you know, for you to have had that space to just do what, what it was that you needed. Um, I got really lucky. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm curious, like, you know, you mentioned the sensory, um, stuff. Um, and and I, and I don't say stuff to diminish it. I just, you know, know for, for you, it's a large range of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, how did you, I know you mentioned some of the stuff in terms of like, you know, wanting to be upside down and stuff like that. Like how, how did the sensory processing affect you or, or how did you experience that? Um, or still do maybe? Well, oh, definitely still do. Um, I know as an infant, I only slept upside down for like a month. <laughs> um, like legitimately would, upside down, like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not like turned around in the crib, but like actually upside down. No, actually upside down. Okay. I would right. sit on the couch and she'd put me on her lap and I would scoot backwards until she could only hold my shin bones and I would hang from my knees backwards upside down. Okay. <laughs> Often she would have to sleep sitting up on the couch. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just always been a big part of my life. I've 
I, and it's so crazy. So to those who are listening, my son Duke also has hydrocephalus like Hawkins. Um, we've made it a year now without a shunt. Um, but he has a grade four brain bleed and he was a preemie. And, um, we obviously have lots of brain trauma and he loves to be upside down also. Okay. Um, and that is a common being a preemie at 27 weeks. It's normal to have neuroatypical disorders. Um, but then also the genetic factor of me having them. Um, so there is this concern and it's funny that you even just said what you said earlier of like when I post videos on my story of me swinging him around upside down, I sort of have this tendency to always write like a disclaimer caption on my videos of like, his neurosurgeon says this is okay. Right, you know, right, like right. just like confirming to other people, like, don't worry about it. Right. Don't call um, CPS. It's okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> of like just, you know, of all the things I don't care about, there is this sense of with your kids that you're like, yeah. okay, hold on. Like I do, I do care. Right. Um, but so, yeah. Um, but so I love to be upside down. My dad had one of those, I was born in 89, so 90s baby. Those rockers that just had the like angled oh, metal yeah. like yep. seats. Yep. And he would take the whole thing and like pick it up and throw it on the floor and pick it up, throw it on the floor. And I would just like rock up and down and like just be shaken all around. And there was, as a baby who had colic, terrible reflux. Um, and I really, truly pretty much screamed the first whole year of my life. Um, that was about the only thing that made me happy was being upside down, being shaken, being spun, um, anything like that. And I say to this day, if somebody can make me an adult sit and spin, (laughs) I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's anything that would make me happier in the world. I have, we went to Disney for one of my best, my best friends, bridal, not bridal showers, bridesmaid parties. What are they called? Bachelor party. Or bachelor party. party. Thank you. Um, And I had blisters on my hands from doing the teacups. I mean, like, and people, like, there were 10 of us. There were girls who were, like, refusing to do the teacups with me. And then there were girls who were begging to do the teacups (laughs) with me. Because you spun it so fast. Yeah. Like, no one's allowed (laughs) to touch the wheel. Only I am. (laughs) And, like, there's, there's this specific like pattern and like I do it very fast and like you can't touch it and you have to like enjoy it or like I'm fine doing it by myself like that's fine (laughs) um but yeah like I love to spin and even still like when I get really bad anxiety I will just at 30 and that's be 31 question mark I don't know I can't do math um I will just lay on the floor and I'll ask my husband like hey can you just spin me around and he'll grab me by the feet and just twist me around. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have no problem with still being a sensory kid at 30, almost 31 years old. Yeah. I'd love to be upside down still. I'd love to be spun. Um, I mean, I am still the person <laughs> in the airplane. I cannot keep my feet on the floor. Floors are not made for feet, like grounds. Ground isn't made for feet. Feet are not made for the ground. Like feet have (laughs) balloons on them to me. Um, I don't understand how people walk upright. Like I just don't get it. Um, (laughs) 
chairs are made to be perched on. They're not made to be sat on with your butt. Feet are not made to be on the floor. Like I just don't, <laughs> I don't understand it. I don't fathom it. It's yeah. weird. Um, so feet go on the ceiling. Um, it's just how, it's how I am. And like, I do it in an airplane full of people. Like, I don't care. Yeah. Um, it's just how I cope. It's how I'm comfortable. Sure. Um, and it's so funny. I see my son now, like anything that's on the floor, he walks on top of, and then he stands on and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, the floor is lava. It's genetic. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, but yeah. it's so true. Like, it's just yeah. how, I don't know. I, my mom always tells stories of me, like, her reading books to me and she was always like, Emily, get your feet out of the books, get your feet out of the book. I can't turn the page. If your foot is in the book, get your foot yeah. out of the book. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was just like feet are just aren't made to be where they go. Like, I don't know. It's just, they just aren't. So yeah, being a sensory kid, but also like, I don't eat chips in the dark. I don't eat colored fruit snacks in the dark. Um, I organize everything by color or by shape, or by size um smallest to biggest quantity or like chip shape anything like that mm. um and then it goes by alphabetical order if there's a tie of the color name um you know i can't eat colored cereal if anyone takes one of something from me i can't eat the rest or even if they pretend to that's like a whole thing okay. um if you want a red one that's fine but you have to wait till i get to the red ones um gotcha. so and it's like it's like a real real compulsion like it's not like haha that's funny yeah um it's it's legitimate and it's always been that way and you know numbers are on even numbers are fives i can do fives um i've recently i think once i turned 29 i started being able to do like 11s or 20 well 22 is an even number 11 33 things like that Okay. Um, which was like a big deal for me. Um, Meaning like the number of items you group things into? Like numbers, like volumes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like volume um, on a TV. And like anytime someone changes the volume because of my sensory processing, I have like very acute hearing mm -hmm. and I'm always like, would you change to Like I can, Oh, I always check the TV or yeah. like the radio or anything. Um, but I buy cars specifically now that don't have number dials that only have like, you know, the, the little bars that change that don't oh, have sure. actual numbers. Sure. Um, because I've gotten in a car accident because I was changing the number on the volume. Okay. Um, so like that's a, that's a yes or no on a car for me. So there are things like that, that like you would never think of that being like a hard, fast, I don't know what the word is. Um, yes or no on buying something, but right. for someone with autism, like if a TV doesn't have a number and just has a grading scale of volume, like that to me might be worth $300. Okay. Um, just you to know, not have to deal with the number. Yeah. Yeah. To not yeah. have to worry about it myself or if someone else touches it. Gotcha. Um, so there's things like that with sensory processing that are just very, I don't know, but also like I can't have conversations in the wind when I'm outside and it's windy. You can't talk to me. I'm angry. I'm irritable. I can't understand anything. Like I'm just a hot mess. 
Because the um, wind's affecting the way you're hearing and processing things. It's or it's just, just so an overwhelming. Yeah. It's so overwhelming. I can't, I feel like I can't, I can't do anything else. My brain is just only trying to calm down the fact that it's windy. Gotcha. It's trying to, the fact that it's itching my skin, blowing my hair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's making my shirt itch my body. It's just, and then it's noisy and it's making my eyes watery, yeah. you know, all those things. Like I can't hear anything because I'm trying to deal with all the rest of it. Gotcha. So sensory processing is, you know, all the physical parts of autism spectrum just in sort of its separate umbrella because we yeah. all deal with the sensory processing in such a different way. Um, sure. And foods for me was like a big thing growing up. I'm not quite as big on food textures as I used to be, but I was growing up. I mean, that was yeah. a huge um, deterrent for some foods for me, but yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole other monster, but they're yeah. so connected, but sure. it's another big whole piece. Yeah. And so it sounds like from what I'm hearing, the way that you've learned to cope with it is just by creating structure around, mm-hmm. you know, like whether it's, you know, buying cars that don't have number dials or, yeah, you know, like creating, creating constructs and structures in your life, whether it be people or just your physical and just life. knowing like yeah. I, I don't buy you know trick cereal or if I right. eat fruit snacks which I love fruit snacks I always have a flashlight with me with my phone like I know that I'm going to need that yeah. and I organize them and lay them out in front of me like and then mm-hmm. I turn my flashlight off and then I eat them left to right right um you know it's yeah. just stuff like that yeah exactly it's just knowing it and knowing that the people around me know all those things and there's yeah. no like you know, it's not a joke. That's all it really comes down to is knowing that like the people around me know it's not a joke. Right. Right. I'm, I'm interested in how, um, obviously I've met Kip. I know he's a great guy. Like how, how was that? Uh, how has that impacted or has it impacted your relationship, your marriage or, or even did it impact dating? Like, did you have guys that like you go on a date with and they're like, what are you doing with your food? (laughs) You know, and then you're like, all right, this guy, this is not the guy, right? Or yeah. like, or friendships, yeah, not, yeah. not necessarily just romantic relationships, but in general, people, obviously your inner circle knew and yeah. knew how to, you know, knew how you needed to function to be, you know, uh, happy and healthy and, and whatever. Um, but what about, how did that, you know, outside your circle, meeting new people, bringing new people into the circle, how did that work? Um, you know, I always... I don't know. I feel like there's this thing about, so I'm a Leo. I'm also an Enneagram eight. I'm very big into like personality types. I know my Myers-Briggs and like, (laughs) I know my whole astrological sign chart and all that stuff. Um, But I do think there is a part of who I am because of all of that, but also just because of who I am. I attract a genuine person, Mm -hmm. but I also, so my husband Kip is, you know, in the corporate world for his career and I am a very bold, loud, I am who I am sort of person. We've done like, you know, the corporate 
Christmas parties and stuff like that. He was always watching me a little on edge <laughs> of what I'm going to say and what I'm going to do. Right. Um, but every single one we've been to, we leave and he's like, oh my gosh, you ate off so-and-so's plate or, oh my gosh, you and so-and-so talked for X amount of time or, oh my gosh, you and so-and-so went to the bar together and got a drink. And I'm like, yeah, like, I think you totally undervalue the fact so many people crave to be around people who are just like blatantly authentic. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's something about people like me that just, now they aren't going to love it their third and fourth time being around <laughs> me because it's a lot. <laughs> so I know that yeah. there is something about being around a person like me at the beginning that people are like very drawn to. Yeah. People don't yeah. meet people like me a lot. Mm -hmm. So there is when, when you're introduced sort of on the outside to a person like me and you're not being drawn into that inner circle immediately. Yeah. I've really never had an issue because people are always so what? Oh yeah. I know. My mom just popped in. <laughs> <laughs> she just said, she was like, you don't follow the rules, so you just walk up to people who are important like you're not supposed to. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And that is what I said to Kit, too. I'm like, I just treat people who you think are so important that shouldn't be attended to and talked to. Right. I just go up and do it. Yeah. And they're so yeah. happy that someone is just treating them like a normal person rather than the rest of all these people here who are like tiptoeing around them. Right. Right, right. Right. So, but in my, those like big circles where we sort of have acquaintances being brought in, um, you know, I've just really never had a single person ever look at me a bad way, say a bad thing about me. Yeah. Judge me sort of in a certain way because all they see is the quote unquote cool like authentic and we are now I want to clarify in this sort of like I think it happened in 2015 maybe 20 earlier than that 2012-ish I don't know if you noticed because you didn't have kids at that time but I noticed a lot because my sister's seven years younger than me that being weird became really cool right. um like I don't know if you saw that like that anti-culture really like became a thing. Absolutely. I think it was when social media, like wasn't when it like got really big, but it was when like almost that second wave of social media happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a voice for it at that point. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. it was like when a lot of more like bloggers came about and podcasts started happening. And like, there was just this like second I don't know, movement sort of. Yeah. It's like so, an unfiltered culture almost. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when that happened was sort of also when I like, you know, was graduating college and all that stuff. So I yeah. also think a lot of what I experienced was the fact that people were seeing that that was cool online mm -hmm. to accept people of like the sort of nature that I was behaving in. Right. Um, so I've just really never experienced any sour 
I don't know, uh, nature towards me at all, ever doing things like that in sort of that acquaintance style um, meeting, which has been nice. I've always only seen it as um, positive because people are so into and sort of treat me like not a novelty in a bad way, but a novelty in sort of like a very interesting, they're very into wanting to get to know the person who is so not into getting to know them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. I got you. Like, you know, they're so used to people like wanting to get to know them. And they're like, why do you not care about getting to know me? Um, you know, so, and in romantic wise, I mean, I don't know. I've, every time I've dated guys, I've always been, I've always sucked my thumb from the get go when I was going to bed. I've always brought my ribbon around, which is my like little everywhere with me. Um, who's with me here? I have them everywhere stuffed around my house. My just fiddle thing. Um, And then, you know, I've just really never had an issue. But in serious relationships where we get to the point of like the sensory processing things and the like having arguments and needing sort of more of that um, coping assistance. Yeah. Yeah. it was weird with Kip. It was just, I don't know. He just never questioned any of it. He didn't understand a single bit of it. <laughs> um, he's someone who still doesn't understand any of it. Um, he really has no concept of why I need the things I need or what it really does for me. Um, but he also doesn't care to know, but I don't mean that in a bad way. Right. Um, I just mean he doesn't care to know as in like, it doesn't make a difference for him of, okay. Um, of if he's going to help or not, right. He's just going to do he just it. Accepts and it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I was always like, Hey, will you pick me up by like, put me on your shoulders and let me hang upside down on your back. And he's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, yeah, it was always just fine. Right. Um, so there was a weird sense to that, that like, I always sort of knew, okay, there's something really special about like our connection that that was never a question, especially when he's never, ever dealt with someone with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially with anyone on the spectrum or with sensory processing, like, but he had, he never ever wondered why or how, or he was just like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Right. I mean, obviously you it knew that was a good fit. It makes you feel better? Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, so. That's very cool. That's what it is. Yeah. So for for people that are living with ASD or sensory processing d- disorders and, and and those things, like f- from for you to them, like what what's something that, you know, if you could empower people or, or maybe even not people living with ASD or sensory processing d- disorders, like What's one thing that you feel like if, if, if they could just get this thing, like that would, that would either increase people's understanding or help their coping or, or, you know, what, something that would empower I think, them. 
I think one of the things, you know, like I've debated for a long time, not debated. I think at some point I really want to, at some point do it, um, speak at seminars and autism conferences, um, just because I have a really special understanding, um, but ability to vocalize things. Um, and one of the things I've always wanted to talk about is sort of how our barometer in a sense works, or at least for me, and I feel like it works like this for a lot of people on the spectrum. It's just that, you know, we start out a day at a hundred mm-hmm. and every single thing that ticks off our sensory system with whatever mask we're wearing. And I do think mass is a whole other conversation too. Sure. Um, but that, you know, masks for me are a way to be perceived, you know, in more of a neurotypical sense yeah. in a way of, you know, okay, I'm going to keep my feet down on the plane for the first 30 minutes <laughs> or, but for me, it's a little less of that. I think because I don't quite care so much mm-hmm. it, but it is mass for me are more of a way to see through the lens of a neuro- neurotypical person and compartmentalize my sensory processing difficulties. Um, but the real difficulty with ASD and with sensory processing that I think most people have a really, really hard time understanding um, and especially caregivers or therapists or psychiatrists or anybody like that is that you see these kids who are great at school and they're so well behaved and there's nothing quote unquote wrong with them. Like they're performing well, they're behaving, they're appropriate with their teachers and peers. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when they're coming home and being misbehaving, then that's a parenting problem. Um, My parents were asked to go to parenting classes multiple times when I was a child, Um, you know, saying she's fine at school. If she's doing all this for you, then that's a you problem. Mm. Um, But they forget that, you know, we wear these masks in public, especially as high functioning people on the spectrum um, that make us able to survive. And it makes us, you know, you sort of think back to this primal survival technique of how do I stay hidden? How do I survive? How do I, you know, make it through my day? How do I get back to my safe place? And my safe place is home. So you do what you have to do to get back to your safe place. And once you're there, everything unloads. So that barometer that started at a hundred and every single thing that happened all day that like ticked it down, you've got to refill it to a hundred before you can function again at that sort of like quote unquote normal level, whatever your baseline is. Yeah. But to get there, you have to like release everything, but you can't do that until you're in your safe place. And that's at home. Right. So, you know, you see these, parents who come into these offices or explain to teachers and guidance counselors that 
their kids are doing X, Y, and Z at home, or they're not eating, or they're having all these food restrictions, or they're, you know, misbehaving to you is what it seems, or they're, you know, having these anger fits, or they can't stand the sound of their siblings, and so they're, you know, marking up the walls, or doing yeah. whatever it is, and you just don't see the factors of why they're doing the things they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you just see a kid who's misbehaving, and it's just a really hard diagnosis if you're not looking at the right things. Yeah. And it's just really important because it's still how I feel. I mean, like I have a tracker on my husband's phone mm-hmm. <laughs> and it alerts me every time he leaves work and he still thinks it's weird. Um, but he'll just never really understand it. But for me, having someone enter my space as a stay at home mom is a really hard thing for me adjust- to adjust to. Yeah. I have to go from being here alone having a second person here Mm -hmm. and I need to do that with the least amount of irritability as possible to make it comfortable for him and for me. Yeah. And so I need to have some sort of understanding of when that's going to happen. Like when is he going to be here? So you can plan Um, for it. Yeah. So I can plan for it. And so, you know, with those kids that are coming home from school or doing this or that, like, you know, I just wish people were more understanding of, the fact that there's more to it than that. There's more to it yeah. than your kid just misbehaving because they want to. Right. You're their safe place and that it's comfortable for them. And that's how I feel with my husband. I mean, it's like all those things that Duke did during the day that are so sensory overwhelming for me, like being a loud little boy who just wants to climb all <laughs> over me all day. Right. I, you know, like I have to let that out. And yeah. for my husband, like I'm always like, I'm unloading it all on you, um, which yeah. isn't fair. So I try to like prepare myself for him to be here. Sure. But, you know, I mean, it's just one of those things that I just really, I want to, I wish I could impart that wisdom on more of the medical community on more of the families and on more of the kids. I, you know, yeah. the more we can teach our kids on the spectrum to self-realize, then the more we can control. Yeah, well, and I think that's a really important. I mean, just as you're here, you're saying that, I, and I'm I'm hearing it. You know, the the timing of those things is really um, uh, unfortunate, right? In that, you know, like taking the example of a kid that's been at school, right? And you've got this, all these things that are ticking off your, you know, your your supply or your comfort or yeah. you know, whatever you want to call that. And then, you know, most likely by the time you're through a day of going through school you're probably pretty close to empty, right? Yeah. So you're that that kid's coming home to parents that have been at work all day yeah. and God knows being at work all day, even if you love your job, yeah. you, you come home uh, and, and you're maybe not empty, but you're low, right? You're, yeah. t- you're tired. You've been stressed out, uh, you know, and that's not even taking into account all the other factors going on at home, whether you know, and I'm not even talking about this whole COVID thing right now, but just a normal, yeah. you know, a, a normal scenario. You know, I, I know there are many times I come home from work and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm shot, I'm short with the kids. You know, I'm not probably giving them the space that, that they need to express themselves and, and not, and, you know, 
to the best of we know, none of our kids have any ASD, you know, tendencies or, or, or on that spectrum, but even for them, right. It, it's, you know, and they react oh, yeah, to that, normal. you know, yeah. yeah, you know, so like, so I can only imagine how much more exponentially difficult that is for a family with a, with somebody that, you know, whether it's a kid or an adult um, yeah. that's on the spectrum, those two convergence of, of yeah. people just being drained, right? And it's like, yeah. well, somebody's got to support somebody somewhere, yeah. right? So you have to figure out a way that you do that. And, and I, I think to your point, like just being able to one, you know, communicate that, right? Because yeah you know, every day is different. Right. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. um, I heard it was, a, I think it was Brene Brown, uh, was interviewed on Tim Ferriss's podcast a while back. And, you know, she mentioned that her and her husband have a thing where it's like, they come home every day and, and, and on a scale of one to 10, like how much do you have left? Right. And it's like, oh, you know, so is this just a check-in that they make with each yeah. other of like, you know, she comes home and is like, Hey, I, I'm six, I got six out of 10. He's like, well, I got four out of 10. She's like, cool. I got you together. We make 10, right? So we can get through yeah. the night and not kill anybody. Um, you know, so I don't know if that's, you know, but something just to, for people to be able yeah. to communicate, like, this is where I'm at, you know, and to your point, giving kids um, that freedom, you know, is, is huge for parents because I think a lot of times, I mean, I would imagine a lot of kids don't feel they have the freedom to to, to tell their parents really yeah. what they need, you know, because yeah. they're whether, and maybe they don't even have the vocabulary articulated either. Right. Exactly. That, that, you know, I mean, that's a thing too, like being able to say, you know, whether it's, do you, I think that speaks back to the self-realizing that you were talking yeah. about being able to, to, to discern yeah. here. I'm, I'm feeling this and what I need to not feel this is X and then yeah. have the comfort, confidence and, and, and vocabulary to then go to, whether it's a teacher, parent, whoever, and go, I need this and I need you to get it for me or give yeah. it to me or give me the space to experience it and express and it. And that all comes from exposure too, exposure yeah. to the options of what may or may not work from you right. and exposure to the words and exposure to the, Hey, here's what we're going to try. Here are multiple options of how this may feel to you. And, you know, it's just, there's so much to it. And there's so much patience that has to be granted. And there's, you know, I mean, it's just, you've got this American society that we have Mm -hmm. of just not having that time and patience. Yeah, we're so fast. Yep. Yeah. Conform and conform or get out of the way is kind of the, is unfortunately has become the American way. Yeah, the balance is such a struggle. And I, I, yeah. I don't, you know, I, I don't know how my mom did it working. And I don't know how parents do it these days. But I just, and I don't know how, I, God, I don't know how I'm going to do it as a stay-at-home mom. I'm exhausted yeah. by the time my husband comes home most days, especially as a person with autism spectrum, because sure. I'm so overwhelmed by my son. Um, yeah. So. I, I don't know. I don't know how we're all going to achieve what we want to achieve, but yeah, at some point we'll figure it out, but it sure. just all comes down to communication. Yeah. And that's really all it comes down to at some point. I mean, it just sure. comes down to like talking. Yeah, absolutely. And discussing stuff and being open and I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's all a giant puzzle that we're all trying to figure our own version yeah, out of. And absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely right. I think, I think that's a, I think that's a very, 
good visual representation of life. You know, it's, we are our own labyrinth. Yeah. We're all a puzzle and somehow our puzzles all fit together, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we all put, you know, and you, you put a, you know, you don't put a puzzle together. You, you, you put a puzzle together piece by piece. Right. Um, yeah. And I think you figure, you know, that's actually a really beautiful kind of way to, you know, conceive life. You know, it's a puzzle and you're putting each piece together at a time, you know, yeah. uh, that's really cool. Um, well, Emma, I appreciate you taking the time and just kind of sharing your story and, and, yeah. and everything. And I, I, I can't, you know, uh, thank you enough. I know it's, you know, for some people it's, it's a struggle to kind of open up and I appreciate you being very open and candid and I know it'll, you know, people that listen, they'll, they'll get something out of it. So I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, very, it was a lot of fun. Very cool. Hey guys, Drew here again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Hawks Heroes. I had a lot of fun sitting down with Emily and it was a fantastic conversation. I cannot thank her enough for her candor and transparency. Uh, If you want to hear more conversations like this, make sure that you are going and subscribing to the podcast, Hawks Heroes, wherever you consume your podcasts. And when you do that, please make sure and give us a five-star review. That helps uh, our podcast out immensely. Uh, So don't forget, subscribe, leave that five-star review, and we will talk to you next time.